Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to episode number 32 of Thyroid Nation Radio Live talk, talk show and podcast. I'm Dana Bowman, founder of ThyroidNation.com. And I'm Tiffany Milanich of Grateful Garden, not Biz. Today we are talking with board-certified naturopathic physician Dr. Hedberg for the second time. Founder of the Immune Restoration Center in Asheville, North Carolina, and drheadbird.com. I know we're so excited. We're silly. He also authored the recently released book, which we are going to talk about today. Yay! The Complete Thyroid Health and Diet Guide, Understanding and Managing Thyroid Disease. I have mine right here with my little tab mark right here in the middle. Your reference guide. (laughs) Well, we are insanely excited to talk with him. But first, just a few things. Uh, if you tuned in with us last week, which we hope you did, you heard us chatting with the amazing Maggie Hadley-West, and we are hoping that she got her deadline in, and that is just going to be like the coolest thing ever. I'm so excited about that. She's the writer, director, producer of SickToDeath.com, mm-hmm. which is a thyroid film, and she is also a Thyroid Nation Thyroid Thriver. Uh, and most importantly, all you thyroid Hashimoto grave sufferers out there, hyperthyroid, thyroid cancer, everybody, you can donate to her amazing film and project, Sick to Death, at sick, the number two, death.com. And, and also listen to the show because she was absolutely fabulous. Uh, you can check that out at the archives in thyroidnation.com, uh, thyroidnationradio.com, I should say. You can also listen to the other great past shows in the archives as well, like Dr. Holtorf, Hypothyroid Mom, Mary Showman, Susie Cohen, Isabella Wentz, Dr. Christensen. There's so many amazing guests that we've had uh, the extraordinary opportunity of interviewing. Um, And Dr. Hedberg, his first appearance was amazing as well. So uh, make sure to also check out the lineup of wonderful and innovative guests we have scheduled uh, on the Thyroid Nation radio page, including future guests like Dr. Jill Carnahan, Gina Lee Nolan, which is in two weeks. Excited about that. She has a crazy thyroid story. Uh, Dr. Tom O'Brien, who is going to grill Dana and I, for sure, I'm pretty sure. And our own amazing Shannon Garrett, Autoimmune RN, who is at a Titan game today. Tennessee Tennessee Titans. Tennessee Titans. So have fun, Shannon. We miss you, and uh, we have some good questions from her. Uh, for Dr. Hedberg as well. All right, very cool. I think he is with us, Dana, so let's get this thyroid nation thriving. Let's do it. Can you hear us, Dr. Hedberg? Yes, I can. Oh, God, there's that. Can you hear me okay? Hi. (laughs) Hi. can hear you you fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's just amazing voice. I forgot about that. Uh, okay, I'm with us now. I know. I'm here. <laughs> okay. You know, so how are you? Have to remember from our first time around, Dr. Hedberg, we are a little, we are a little silly. So you, you gotta cut us a little bit of slack. <laughs> I hear you. It's uh, Sunday afternoon, and uh, you guys pulled me away from watching football, but that's fine. I'm excited oh. to talk about thyroid. <laughs> We'll only take a short period yes. of time. What's your yes. favorite football team? Uh, I don't really have a favorite one. I just tend to watch the Patriots and the Packers. 
Any Super the Bowl Patriots? Hmm. <laughs> Why you don't like the Patriots? Hmm. Huh. Uh, well, you know, I'll leave that for another show. No, we're actually watching the Cowboys right now. So. <laughs> the Cowboys. Well, I should have known that. <laughs> All right. Super Bowl predictions, right. Dr. Hedberg? Patriots, Packers. <laughs> okay. There you have it. Patriots, Packers, and who's going to win? Just a, just a prediction. The Patriots. All right. There you have hmm. it, Anna. All right. You just wait. I'm going to hold you to that. You just wait. We're going to do our own offline betting. Shh, don't tell anybody. Oh, God. <laughs> okay, well, it's good, it's good to have you back. I'm so, so very glad to uh, to talk to you today. I mean, we do. We want to jump right into um, what's been going on with you and tell us about your book. I know um, we had you on the show, but the book launched after we had you on the show. So tell us how it's going and, and uh, what you've been up to. Right, so the book came out in April of this year, and uh, I guess it's been doing pretty well. Um, just been focusing on, uh, you know, getting the word out about that, and I've gotten some good feedback on the book. It's been very helpful for a lot of people. Um, you know, even the the information in it, uh, you know, half of the book is recipes, so a lot of people are using it just for that. Um, but it's pretty pretty comprehensive uh, as far as the information you know, in, inside. Well, nutrition is such a huge thing with thyroid health. I think, you know, people can either, you know, tip the scale one way or another just by what they put in their mouth for sure. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's why... We're talking about uh, nutrition today because that's sort of the, you know, the foundation of of your metabolism and and the thyroid. So now, especially in a in a you know borderline or subclinical type thyroid situation, um, Doctor Hedberg, don't you find that some people can just sort of normalize their thyroid even by altering their diet, not necessarily needing to go on thyroid medication yet? Do you ever find that? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people who, for a variety of reasons, have developed low thyroid function uh, because of either, you know, weight gain or insulin resistance, um, or they've been on some of these, you know, recent diets that are kind of in vogue, like the ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting, uh, and diets like that, which can really uh, have a negative effect on the thyroid function. Tip the scale, yeah, absolutely. If yeah, if they follow them for too long, or they're not really doing it right, then uh, that can have some lasting effects on the thyroid gland. Okay, you talk about intermittent fasting and ketogenic, so we'll just jump right into a, a very good first question. How does blood sugar and insulin resistance affect thyroid function? And, of course, you mentioned a couple of diets that really send both of those uh, cuckoo. Right. So the insulin resistance, uh, that's a big factor because that can lead to polycystic ovarian syndrome, uh, which also has strong ties with Hashimoto's. And then when you have these constant uh, surges, spikes, and peaks and valleys in blood sugar, 
that's also been shown to negatively affect thyroid function. And uh, as people gain weight uh, from becoming more insulin-resistant, then, of course, their thyroid starts to struggle as well. So getting the blood sugar under control and the insulin resistance under control is, you know, one of the cornerstones if that's a problem with someone who has hypothyroidism. Now, you talk about intermittent fasting and, and blood sugar. And, of course, being a food-controlled diabetic, I understand this, this, this particular premise extremely well. But when people, unfortunately, in Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism, people have a tendency to hang on to weight. So for women in particular, you know, we get very concerned about the additional weight that you're, you know, we're gaining or holding on to or whatever. So they have a tendency not to eat. I see it all the time because they think that, you know, less calorie intake or less food intake or whatever, you know, mentality goes along with that, that they're going to somehow lose weight. And it actually works very much in the flip-flop. Um, Can you explain to everybody a little bit how that works when they don't eat? Then the blood sugar drops, and, of course, then they have a tendency to carb load and how that creates uh, disaster in the making. Right. So that's an important question because it's a very common thing, Um, you know, especially in, uh, you know, the female population with, you know, body image and our modern society and and things like that and the effect on diet. And uh, when you don't eat enough calories, uh, you're basically telling your body that there's not enough food available. And whenever you study psychology and biochemistry, uh, you you really learn that everything that we do and everything that affects our biochemistry is really based on our our ability to survive. And when we don't eat or when we don't eat enough carbohydrates, that really tells the brain that there's a famine, there's not enough food available. And so the most important thing is to conserve energy. And our fat stores are the greatest load of energy storage available. And so our bodies are going to do whatever they can to preserve that fat for survival. So even if you convert into ketosis, into a fat-burning metabolism for a long period of time, uh, you'll either gain a little bit of weight or you'll really hit a sticking point over the long term because your brain just says, you know, we just need to really slow down our metabolism. We need to conserve our fat for survival because healthy skin, healthy hair, healthy nails the way we look, the way we feel, our mood, that's not really important to the human body when we're trying to survive. And so all of those things are negatively affected when we go on a very low-carbohydrate diet or a ketogenic diet for a long period of time. Everything just slows down. What the research shows is that thyroid hormone levels really start to drop, especially free T3, which is the most active form, and then we also know that reverse T3 will elevate in these types of diets, uh, either ketogenic or very low carbohydrate. So those are the those are the most important things to understand is that our bodies are built for survival, and we need to be aware of that. Well, I think, too, a lot of people don't understand and, and the ketogenic you know, diet. Wait. Oh, go ahead, Dana. I was just going to say, after your thought, will you go ahead and jump into, yeah, can you hear me? 
Yeah, you sound great. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes. Can um, you go? Okay. After you finish, after you finish, after you finish your thought, will you jump into uh, giving you know the listeners out there a little bit about you and your history and why you know this this is very relevant to you and how it kind of affects you and Hashimoto's and all that? Just just to let everybody know where you're coming from. Right. So, in my twelfth year of practice, no, I was ta- I meant, and no, oh, I'm, ta- I'm sorry. I meant Tiffany. <laughs> sorry, Tiffany. I meant you. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know who <laughs> Tiffany, you were. Tiffany, you were going to answer his question. No, no, that's no. Okay. I'm thoroughly no, confused. Okay. No, I was just going to mention. Question. I I was just going to mention <laughs> sorry, real quick ahead. that a lot of people don't understand the, um, you know, Dr. Hedberg. You you probably not know this a lot more than I do, but. Uh, originally ketogenics were more for seizures and people that had severe metabolic uh, issues, correct? It wasn't meant for the general population. It's not a long-term diet that works very well um, for the average person. Wouldn't you agree? Right. I do use it for specific conditions and specific cases. It's not necessarily followed for a long period of time uh, with everyone. I actually do use it quite a bit, uh, but we may only use it for three or four weeks uh, as an example. Or we may just do it for a week as sort of a diagnostic uh, procedure to see the impact that insulin resistance is having on the body, especially the brain and uh, energy levels and the mood, because sometimes the brain is so insulin resistant that nothing is really working there with uh, mental energy, stamina, um, our mood, uh, the clarity and the sharpness of our brains and things like that. And sometimes just getting into ketosis, the brain sort of wakes up because it's finally able to burn something because it wasn't able to burn glucose. So now it's burning ketones. And it usually does that quite well, even if the brain is insulin resistant. But uh, you're correct that it's not really a great thing to do for very long periods of time or at least long periods of time without supervision so that uh, you know exactly how to manipulate the metabolism and the thyroid uh, with someone who really understands that. Mm, Absolutely. Okay, so what carbs... I know that you are a low-carb, low or maybe I should ask you, tell us carbohydrate-wise how you feel about what types of carbohydrates, um, how frequently, and um, what, um, you know, what you think about carbohydrates as far as what, when, and how much, and how that affects thyroid function as well. Right. So if we look at the literature, uh, what we found is that 50 grams of carbohydrates or lower will begin to negatively affect thyroid function. So our bare minimum, if we're not doing a short, you know, ketogenic trial, our bare minimum is usually going to be between 50 and 100 grams of carbohydrates a day if there is significant blood sugar, insulin resistance problems. Because as long as you're above 50 grams a day, you're telling the hypothalamus in the brain that we don't have to worry about a famine, we don't have to worry about starvation, and so the metabolism really isn't going to throw, isn't going to slow down in that range. And then we just base things on symptoms from there. 
if we want to go higher than 50 to 100. And that's also is going to depend on uh, how much body fat the patient has and their other symptoms and things like that. But most people uh, with thyroid problems, if blood sugar is significantly involved, they'll do better on a very, very low-carbohydrate breakfast, and then they might do a moderate to very low lunch, and then carbohydrate intake gets a little bit higher around dinner time. So usually people need to be in a little bit more of a dopamine-dominant state while they're working all day. And when we're doing high-protein, low-carbohydrate, we're more dopamine-dominant. And then when we start eating carbohydrates, that's when we start to feel that high and relaxation uh, from the serotonin that is made from carbohydrate intake because you need carbohydrates to get tryptophan into the brain. And that's when people start kind of slowing down, uh, feeling good. And so they'll usually do that later in the day around dinner time. And then all, that also helps them go to sleep because you need that, that uh, glu- the glucose level to be somewhat sufficient to get tryptophan into the brain, and then tryptophan makes serotonin and then melatonin. And so that's sort of the model that we'll use for a lot of people with low thyroid and who also have blood sugar problems. You know, it's it's so fascinating Tiff, for are me. Are you there? Yeah. I, can you hear us okay? We're having some connection troubles with Dana, Dr. Hagenberg, just so you know. Can you hear us okay, Dana? Yeah. I can, but I think maybe I'm on some kind of delay or something because when I talk, it takes you a minute to hear me, and then you guys have already kind of moved on. So that's why I'm trying to just be a little bit quiet back here because I don't want to to mess up the connection anymore. So sorry about that, guys, and I don't even remember what I was going to ask you now, so just keep going. I'm here. I'm here. You know what, honey? You can also always PM me your question through um, Facebook, and then I can ask Dr. Hedberg because you are on a delay. It sounds like a delay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. So it's it's so fascinating for me, Dr. Hedberg, because, of course, I've been, unfortunately, a numbers eater uh, pretty much ever since I was diagnosed diabetic at 19. So for me, numbers are huge. Like, you know, I can't exceed uh, about 15 grams of protein, uh, 20, well, not so much the protein, but, yeah, actually the protein, because you go too much protein, then your blood sugar will drop as well. But like the 15, 25 carbohydrate maximum, 15 grams of protein for breakfast for me is ideal. I function very well. So it's so fascinating to you explaining uh, the science behind the numbers, <laughs> you know. But um, it always blows my mind how many people do very well and how many people, you know, do very well, you know, within a numbers range and how many people, and you probably see it all the time in your practice, how people don't understand a portion size and how that equates to carbohydrates and how their drink also equates to carbohydrates. And it it just, it's such a fascinating numbers game, you know, to really find it ideal. Oh, no, did I lose everybody? Oh, okay, good. (laughs) No, you've got me. Uh, We really have to earn our carbohydrates, uh, especially these days. You know, with so many people working uh, desk jobs, long hours, and carbohydrates just really add up very quickly. I mean, even just a quarter 
quarter cup, a half a cup of rice is, you know, quite a bit uh, for a lot of people. And so you're right, you know, the portion size is important. And then we have a document called low glycemic carbohydrates that we give to all our patients with blood sugar problems. And that has basically all the carbohydrates that I recommend that have a minimal impact on blood glucose. And so they're okay to eat those, but we do have to talk about portion size. And so the easiest way to do that is just to use the hand and uh, instead of, you know, exactly measuring everything. And so we'll just say a very small handful or, you know, half a handful of low glycemic carbohydrates, you know, is usually going to be okay uh, for most people, obviously, you know, for non-diabetics, even if they're insulin resistant. Um, and then, So give, every, like give everybody said, an example of what a low glycemic carbohydrate is. For, for for the listeners out there, a handful of low glycemic carbohydrate, what foods would those be? What foods are okay, according to Dr. Hedberg, in a low glycemic carbohydrate? Right. So we just have a few different families. So, of course, the legumes are going to be, all are going to be low glycemic. So all types of beans and all types of lentils are going to be low glycemic. And then the non-starchy carbohydrates, like uh, brown rice, uh, sweet potatoes, or excuse me, those are starchy. Uh, starchy carbohydrates like brown rice and sweet potatoes are additional examples. Uh, of course, nuts have carbohydrates, and those are going to be low glycemic. And then we'll have a we have a list of a lot of different fruits that are low glycemic. A lot of them in the berry family, you know, blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, things like that. So. We do try and get a variety of different types of carbohydrates uh, from all the different families uh, in the right portions. Yeah, that's fabulous. You know, we talk about, I know we're going to get a little bit into gluten as well, but, you know, people oftentimes assume gluten-free foods, especially like gluten-free pastas or whatever, if you read the, the labeling on the back, you know, a very small portion of that will still, you know, you're still clearing 50 carbohydrates in, in one small serving. It's still, you know, it's like, yeah, but that's still going to make you feel poorly, especially if you have insulin resistance. You know, just explaining that whole food is just so powerful and getting people down to their to their perfect science is, is so individual. Do you find that with your clients that it's a very individual? I mean, I'm sure there's fair guidelines, but it's probably pretty individually specific. Exactly. And, you know, we're, the headline was sort of the best thyroid diet. You know, we're going over some basic principles, but the best thyroid diet is going to be very, very different for a lot of different people, you know, depending on their situation. Like you were saying, the the low, the gluten-free foods these days are really just junk food. I mean, most of them are highly processed, very low in fiber, a very high glycemic, and people aren't really doing themselves any benefit uh, by eating these gluten-free foods that are having a negative impact on blood sugar and their thyroid. Okay, guys, I think I'm I'm in. You're in. Can you hear me now? Is there a delay? No, not for me. How about you, Dr. Hedberg? I can hear you fine. 
Okay, good. Okay, sorry, guys. Um, that's sometimes what happens when you're calling from Costa Rica, and it's an Internet-based uh, phone call. Sorry about that. I just I had to switch phones a couple times, so I've missed out on a lot of this, so I apologize. So I'm just going to kind of jump in here and there. Um, I know we were just talking <laughs> about how everybody's, how, how everybody's so different, and Tiffany and I say this on almost every episode of each show, that it really is kind of based on exactly exactly that. No two people are, are the same. And their environment isn't the same, and their history isn't the same, and where they live and what they've been exposed to isn't the same. So um, I love the fact that your your book is called The Complete Thyroid Health and Diet Guide because, you know, you can kind of get into the fact that, you know, everybody's different, and you got to kind of address each person's uh, individualities, right? That's exactly right. And having that half of the book being recipes, that is huge for people because yeah. so many people, they might know what works well for them, but they're not exactly sure what to eat. You know, we get so trained mentally on, uh, you know, poor eating habits that a lot of people just really don't know what to eat. So having that recipe guide is huge. That's amazing. Well, and I can tell you right now, you know, because I've got the book open right here in front of me. I've got stuffed artichokes and roasted asparagus, and those are two of my favorites. So, um if you don't have the book, page 324 and 325, you got to get it because there's some really good stuff in here. Okay, Dr. Hedberg, Blythe, Blythe has a, a great question from Thyroid Mom. She says, so many people say despite switching to armor or adding T3, they still don't feel well and have brittle nails, hair, etc. What can we do to supplement medications? What vitamins and minerals do you recommend? It's a great question. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so again, you know, it's going to be very individual. If someone is on armor, they add in T3, and they don't really notice a difference, then there are obviously a number of factors that are probably overlooked. So let's just go over a few of the big ones. And the first is zinc, uh, because the thyroid receptor, the T, the nuclear receptor, it really will not work correctly if there's a zinc deficiency. And zinc deficiencies are very common. Um, stress rapidly depletes zinc uh, from the diet. Our modern diets are pretty devoid of zinc. Um, and when you have hypothyroidism, usually you'll have lower than normal hydrochloric acid levels in the stomach. And so you're really not going to break down and absorb vitamins and minerals as you normally would. So it kind of creates a vicious cycle of low thyroid, uh, low stomach acid, low zinc, and other issues that are related to low stomach acid. So zinc is sort of one of the foundational, fundamental things that we'll do with you know almost everyone, uh, every patient I see, because zinc is the second most abundant mineral in the body behind iron. And so that kind of brings us to iron stores. And so that's why we do the ferritin blood test on every patient uh, to see if the amount of iron stored in the body is adequate because that will actually affect thyroid hormone production and the conversion of T4 into T3. And zinc will also affect the conversion of T4 into T3, not just the receptor. And so if the ferritin levels are low, uh, which I like to see at about 50 to 150 on the blood tests, 
uh, but the standard lab range says you're okay as long as you're above 20. So that kind of leaves a gap of about 30 points for a lot of people. And then some women just tend to do better with a ferritin level up above 100, more towards 150 on, on the higher end. So if those two are low, the iron stores and zinc, then it doesn't really matter, you know, what you're taking as far as the medication goes because you're not going to convert it adequately and it's certainly not going to um, optimally bind to the receptor and do what thyroid hormone is supposed to do. So do you have an average, I mean, you know, of course, zinc can also be, you know, become toxic for most people, and I, I see it oftentimes, people doubling, tripling zinc uh, within their supplements. Do you have, not necessarily a magic number, but do you have a general rule of thumb that you like to see covered uh, in a supplement, or obviously that's going to be dependent on the person, but let's just say as a general rule. Right. So I use a product that has 30 milligrams of zinc and one milligram of copper per capsule. Once you get above 50 50 milligrams of zinc a day through supplementation, you start to create a copper deficiency. And a copper deficiency will begin to negatively affect the adrenals, which are intricately involved with the thyroid. And then the copper deficiency will also affect the blood vessels, uh, the ligaments, uh, energy levels, the immune system. Copper is, you know, pretty important for a lot of different things. And so a lot of people are creating copper deficiencies, which will also create uh, some overlap of thyroid symptoms, you know, like fatigue. So uh, 30 milligrams of zinc per one milligram of copper is fine. Uh, most people, if they are deficient, you know, we'll just do two capsules a day of that for about 30 to 60 days. And then we do what's called a zinc taste test because the blood tests out there for zinc are just not really all that accurate. And the taste test uh, does a pretty good job of identifying zinc status and zinc deficiencies. Now, what do you mean by taste test, Dr. Hedbrook? Can you explain that to us a little bit? Right. So there's a liquid uh, zinc solution that's offered by a number of uh, supplement companies, and you swish the zinc around in the mouth for 30 seconds, and there we have a sort of a scale of whether you taste something or you don't taste something or if it tastes like hydrogen peroxide or if it's sweet or fuzzy. All those different indicators can give us an idea of the severity of the zinc status or if there is a deficiency. Now, when you say zinc testing is fairly poor, a uh, quick question for you. Most you know, conventional docs, that's one of the reasons why I love naturopaths, Woo, love naturopaths, uh, is that they, very, they don't, unless with severe prompting, they really don't test the zinc and copper very frequently. So when you talk about when someone be, is normal in zinc, does that necessarily mean that they're normal or, like you said, it's not really optimal testing? So you use the zinc swish as a much more accurate um, way to determine someone's zinc status? 
Yes, yes, it works quite well because, like I said, the if a blood test for zinc, whether it's in the serum or if it's a red blood cell zinc, that is not necessarily an indicator of zinc status for the entire body. Uh, so that's why we use that, and as well as symptoms. Um, if you have white spots on your fingernails, that's one of the easiest ways to identify a zinc deficiency. Ah, very cool. That's a very cool, very cool tip. All right, and and you know that is um, absolutely. Yeah, that's a flower field moment, particularly that zinc yeah. copper relationship and uh zinc status and and being very important and, and people obviously they get sick much more frequently, uh is a fairly good indicator as well, isn't it? Uh Dr. Hedberg for low zinc. Zinc is at the cornerstone of immune system function. So yes, people who have people who say, Yeah, I just pick up everything that is around me. Uh, they tend to be zinc deficient. Now that's definitely a good I love, tip. Absolutely. I love naturopaths. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Everybody deserves the, uh, that kind of care, you know? Yeah, right. I was going to oh, ask right. for, the, uh, for the men out there, if there are any men listening or, you know, any of the spouses, every time a man ejaculates, he actually loses a significant amount of zinc uh, because the prostate contains, uh, there's a large amount of zinc in that fluid. And uh, so regular, you know, sexual intercourse for men, they should definitely be supplementing with zinc to keep their zinc levels in a healthy range. Wow. Wow, that is definitely interesting. That is not something I've ever heard before. You, Tiff? No, but I mean, you you look at vitamins and miner- minerals, and I really think right. you know, they're the corner cornerstone of so many illness. But it never, ever, ever—I shouldn't say never, ever, ever—but it, it rarely, let's say rarely, it rarely gets addressed in conventional medicine. You know, unless it's just a screaming problem, which can be a problem for the person for a long time prior to that, it actually showing up. So you know, that doesn't surprise me, but I think it's. That's interesting, though. You know, I, I, I just got to go out on a limb here because you would think that that would make men more prevalent to thyroid disorders than women. You know, like, uh, I don't That's know what I was if thinking. you had a chance. Yeah, Shemaine Nugent was mentioning how women are significantly right. more susceptible to mold exposure than mm-hmm. men are. And just, you know, just the physiological differences between men and women to me fascinate me. <laughs> I mean, it's a good thing, but you would think that they would be more apt to become more zinc deficient, like you said, especially, you know, sexually active, and uh, which would put them more prone to thyroid disorders, which they are not. Right. If moment. we look at the, I mean, the number one cause of hypothyroidism is Hashimoto's that tends to be the cause of about 90% of the cases. So um, that uh, is really the reason, one of the reasons why you know, women are more prone to hypothyroidism. And then the other reasons just kind of tie in with all the reasons why women are more prone to autoimmune disease in general. Um, okay, well, I don't... 
I want to I want to just jump into something that I don't think we covered too much on our first um, our first show with you, Dr. Hedberg. I know we we touched on it, but goitrogens. I really want to get I really want to get your <laughs> take on it because we have had so many people on this show since we spoke with you that feel differently, and it it goes up and it goes down, it goes back and it goes you know forth, and and it's it's crazy how everybody has a different opinion. And so I really want to get where you're coming from with this goitrogen myth. Right, right. <laughs> there are no, yeah, I mean, there are no valid scientific studies that uh, it would indicate that goitrogens have a negative effect on thyroid function in humans. In fact, if you look at the goitrogenic foods, they actually will improve thyroid function because a lot of them are rich in vitamin A and zinc and iron and sulfur-containing amino acids and things like that. So you would really have to look at, number one, we have to always qualify and quantify whenever we're talking about, you know, foods or supplements or anything. So you have to look at the quantity consumed. You have to look at the quality of the source. And then you have to look at the individual. So, for example, you know, I'll see many, many people who are completely fine you know, eating so-called goitrogenic foods. And then we'll see some people who say, well, I have this, uh, I have kind of a reaction, you know, if I have a goitrogenic food. Uh, but then when you look at their diet, you realize that they are eating other foods that are also goitrogenic, but they have no problem with those. And so you have to look deeper. You have to look at, well, what is the particular goitrogenic food? Is it are they really having a problem with oxalates, you know, in the kale or in the Swiss chard uh, and things like that? Or is it more of a problem with phytates? Uh, is their digestion compromised? Um, are they having difficulties metabolizing the high amount of sulfur-containing amino acids that are in some goitrogenic foods, which will negatively affect thyroid function? So it's never a, these questions are never a black and white issue, and you have to you have to exercise a lot of caution with anyone who takes a side on anything that we're talking about and says this is the way it is for every single human being on the planet. Those people are very dangerous and very dogmatic, and so uh, you know you have to be very prudent in. Uh, you know, the advice you take and uh, who you listen to. Amen. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Amen. All so right. I, Thank you. I just have to, to kind of I, get your take there. I got to just, can I throw in a two cents there or ask a question? Oh, so yes. Go for it, please. Because <laughs> I am the queen of two cents, right? <laughs> Okay, so mm-hmm. do you think sometimes um, iodine status in a, in a person can affect their goitrogenic response, also vitamin D levels? And how about combinations of too many goitrogens in one food or in one meal, let's just say? Can food combinations make that goitrogenic effect uh, more significant or not? 
Right. Yeah. I mean, you would definitely have to look at, of course, the individual, their iodine status, uh, selenium status. You know, what else is in the meal? Uh, do they have Hashimoto's? Do they not have Hashimoto's? Is there a genetic polymorphism in iodine uptake into the thyroid gland? Or is there a genetic polymorphism in the way it's metabolized? And then, of course, methylation, you know, comes into the picture as well. Uh, so, for example, like I used the, the example of oxalates before, but then you can also look at some of these goitrogenic foods. Um, like I said, you know, they may be very high in vitamin A, or they may be high in other compounds that the patient is having trouble metabolizing. And so you do have you do have to take all those things into account. All right, very cool. So we got a very reasonable goitrogenic answer on that. Yay! <laughs> Yay! Yes, we did. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Well, let's go to some other great questions. Dana, do you have one of these questions that you would like to ask? Well, I do. I wanted to I wanted to um talk to you about um body type because I know that um or I think that it does affect, you know, how you eat and I wanted you to talk a little bit about that if you would, Dr. Hedberg. I'm sorry. What was the question? Can you hear me? How does one's body type affect how you eat? Right, right. So body type, also known as somatotyping, that's been around a long time. Uh, when I was a bodybuilder in the 90s, uh, it was something that was talked about a lot. And some of the books you know, that we used to read, even going back to the 1960s and the 70s, talked about somatotyping. So there's basically three types, the endomorph, the mesomorph, and the ectomorph. And you can just sort of look around, you know, people you know, family, friends, things like that, and you'll see a lot of different body types. And these body types are, of course, dependent on genetics, but they're also uh, a result of what's going on with the patient's hormones. Uh, so the endomorph tends to be more insulin resistant. They hold a lot more fat. They have very the difficult time losing weight. They tend to be more hypothyroid, and so those individuals do best on a more a moderate to very low carbohydrate diet, and they might do a little bit better uh, with a little bit more fat. And then the second type is the mesomorph, which is kind of in between. And the mesomorph, they tend to do the best on a good balance of protein, carbohydrates, and fat. Not necessarily going, you know, higher or lower on the carbohydrate uh, or the fat. And the mesomorphs tend to have pretty robust thyroid and adrenal function, and they can gain muscle uh, relatively easily. These are the people that have athletic body types, uh, even though they may not even really exercise that much. And then the ectomorph is the person who is very, very lean, uh, they have difficulty gaining fat and muscle. They tend to have what we would, we, you might say, oh, well, you know, this person has a very fast metabolism. Or you may know know someone who 
they can kind of eat whatever they want, but they never really gain weight. So they tend to have the best thyroid function, but their adrenals tend to be somewhat uh, fragile, so to speak. And so the protein content of all three types is pretty much the same. So the only thing that you're that you're really manipulating is the carbohydrate and the fat intake. And the ectomorphs do a little bit better on a moderate to higher carbohydrate and a lower fat, whereas the endomorphs are a little bit moderate to higher fat but much lower carbohydrate intake. And so though, that's kind of an, an easy way of just looking at someone and beginning to figure out what's going on with their thyroid and their hormones and their metabolism. Just by looking at them, right? Exactly. And so maybe an example of an endomorph would be Oprah Winfrey? I don't know. I'm trying to uh, <laughs> help the listeners out there for, for people who are listening, um, you know, try to get a visual of, of maybe, uh, you know, exactly what what body type you mean. Um, can you can you help me out here? I'm trying to think of somebody famous that everybody might know. Yeah, I mean, if we just think of some of the more heavier set people, uh, you know, like John Candy uh, would have obviously been an endomorph. And then Oprah, without without really knowing any particulars about these people, um, right. you can't necessarily say exactly. But um, if you do see someone, the, the mesomorphs can be a little bit more difficult, but the ectomorphs will really stand out, and, and so will the, will the endomorphs. Okay. Right, much more Great. large range. Everyone's quiet now. <laughs> okay, so right. how about leptin resistance? This is something that most people don't talk about frequently. Tell us how you use leptin resistance and how that affects thyroid function uh, in your practice, Dr. Hedberg. So leptin brings us back to blood sugar and insulin resistance and what we were talking about with survival. So normally uh, when you would eat, uh, your fat cells produce leptin, and they tell the hypothalamus in the brain, we've had enough to eat, uh, we don't really need to eat any more, metabolism looks pretty good, so let's burn you know, everything that we're eating. For people who have gained a lot of body fat and who are insulin resistant, all that extra fat is producing a lot more leptin. And so the brain gets saturated with leptin over a long period of time, and eventually it just says, you know what, I'm tired of this leptin. I don't really care anymore uh, when I when I uh, get a hit of it. And so the brain then says, well, there's uh, really nothing to tell me from the body that we need to increase metabolism because it's so resistant to it. And so metabolism starts to slow down due to the leptin resistance. And then what they've shown is that leptin resistance will actually create a hypothyroid state, but the TSH will be normal. So the uh, thyroid um, conversion enzymes, the deiodinase enzymes, there's D1, D2, and D3. These are 
mainly involved in the conversion of T4 to T3, uh, these begin to shift in leptin resistance. And so T3 levels will be very low in the periphery and the rest of the body. But in the pituitary, uh, the T3 levels are actually normal. And so that gives us sort of a false picture on a blood test. So you might look at a TSH. It looks completely normal or maybe even a little low normal. So the patient actually might look a little hyperthyroid. But they're actually very, very hypothyroid uh, because the T3 levels in the whole body are low except for in the brain, and that's because of the leptin resistance. So when we test leptin and uh, we see it elevated, then we begin to work on insulin resistance because that's really how you treat the leptin resistance. But it's 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 not really, like you said, it's not really talked about. It should be talked about a lot more because of the deception on the blood tests and the TSH that can happen just because of this single hormone. And and how how again do you test leptin, Dr. Hedberg? Uh, just any commercial lab will test leptin in the blood. Okay. Just a, a straight leptin test. Now, would that be mm-hmm. something that would be helpful for most thyroid sufferers right off the bat, or is that something that gets, you know, kind of gotten to a little bit further into other things? Right. That's a good question. I mean, it's not necessarily – I wouldn't put it uh, – first line, you know, for everyone. Uh, But if I do see someone who says if they look like they're having difficulty losing weight, uh, if they say no matter what they eat, no matter what diet they do, they don't really lose weight, then we'll definitely do that. Uh, But not everybody's like that, so we won't do the leptin on, on everyone. All right. That's a good thing because I know we have a doctor out here in Palm Springs uh, who has just a crazy long waiting list, and he tests leptin a lot. Like, it's you know a, a primary thing, so it's uh, you know it's becoming I think more popular where it wasn't before. So that's good to know that uh, that that would apply in certain circumstances only. Mm-hmm. All right, and I, I want to know. I mean, you know, people. I think we probably ask every other at least guest on the show um is is gluten-free absolutely necessary dr hedberg what are your thoughts i want to get a thought from a naturopath that, that we've had on the show before that we know and trust so what are your thoughts there right so this sort of ties in with what i was saying before about goitrogens and being very cautious of fanaticism dogmatism and making things very black and white and uh, gluten is one of those examples of things that we can't say, okay, every single human being on planet Earth that has a thyroid problem can not eat gluten. That's just a completely absurd statement. And uh, that that holds true even for those with Hashimoto's. And uh, we have to look at it, again, on an individual basis, we have to definitely quantify it. So when you say gluten, are you talking about one slice of bread a month or are you talking about, you know, a large pizza, you know, three days a week? 
so this well, is where we have to talk about. <laughs> I mean, that's, we have to talk about. <laughs> let's ex- talk about it. We have to talk about extremism and uh, fanaticism in these dietary recommendations. And the first area that we have to talk about is gut health, uh, because that's going to significantly impact the body's ability to digest and metabolize the gluten. We have to talk about genetics. Are there genetic predispositions to gluten intolerance? Is the patient actually, do they actually have celiac disease? Uh, What is the cause of the Hashimoto's? Is it Epstein-Barr virus, which may have absolutely nothing to do with gluten? Is it H. pylori? Is it Lyme disease? Is it rickettsial infections? Um, is it uh, because they live near Chernobyl? I mean, there are just so many other things that can cause Hashimoto's and everything is so individual. And so to say that everyone should avoid it no matter what is actually quite dangerous. And it's also, it has a negative effect on people's lives, uh, when they're out with friends, when they're dining out, uh, there are certain things that they want to eat that they don't necessarily have to avoid all the time. Uh, so that has, there has to be a common sense approach, a gray area. And I know, I mean, I keep saying this over and over again, but it just it depends on the individual. Yeah, it, and it does, and that makes me feel so much better, doesn't it? You, Tiffany. Very much so. Yeah, it's we we you know, say that all the time. About, <laughs> we do well because because we have some some different guests coming up, so we're always you know talking about uh, what they're going to say, what they're going to think with what we eat or don't eat. But talk about the Epstein Barr virus, Tiffany. You want to throw your two cents in there? No, no, it's more of a burning question. You mentioned um, you know how Epstein Barr can actually affect that. Just uh, that's a personal thing. It's an active Epstein Barr. What? Um, any any of helpful Dr. Hedberg two cents for me on that one? Yeah, so Epstein Barr is a very very common factor in all types of autoimmune disease and chronic fatigue, and uh, basically, people who have autoimmune disease tend to have a genetic deficiency in the immune system cells that will control this virus, and so it allows it to proliferate. So we have to remember that the Epstein-Barr virus is a herpes virus, but we don't have the advantage, so to speak, of seeing an outbreak. So with herpes 1 and 2, you have a visual outbreak in the mouth or on the genitals, and so you know that it's active. The Epstein-Barr virus, you don't, you can't see that because there are no outbreaks on the skin, but it can be active. And so sometimes the only real symptom is, a exacerbation of the autoimmunity or the antibody load. And so just some basics on how we approach that is selenomethionine, uh, 200 micrograms a day is a good start. And then we use uh, lauric acid. We have a protocol for that. And then intravenous uh, vitamin C, or if you can't do intravenous vitamin C, we do what's called a vitamin C loading or a vitamin C flush where we're maximizing the oral intake of buffered vitamin C 
every day. And so those are, and I, I would add zinc in there as well, um, but those are some of the big ones that we'll start with in a lot of individuals to get that under control. Now, you mentioned about gluten and, and Epstein-Barr. If someone has active Epstein-Barr, would you consult them to avoid gluten? You mentioned that being one of the cofactors of gluten or no gluten, and, and you know, in that you mentioned Epstein-Barr virus in there. The two are unrelated. Uh, so, again, that would just be an individual thing, whether we would do that or not. If there were no signs of of gluten sensitivity and I mean gluten intolerance gluten sensitivity that term is actually beginning to be phased out because it's being disproven right. uh, bringing us back to celiac disease you know affecting 1% of the world and that's it when the real issue is FODMAPs and the quality and the quantity of the consumption right. so that, uh, so are you a food exclusion person or food exclusion doc at all? Do you believe in food exclusions of any kind, or do you think that's more problematic in the long run? Definitely uh, an individual thing. So I may see some a patient, and there really just is no need to do any food exclusions. And then in some patients... Well, many times that's this, that's determined by their gut problems and their gut symptoms. So if they have very, very weak or compromised mechanical digestion, signs of low hydrochloric acid, a lot of gas, bloating, cramping, you know, all the different, all the different symptoms that people have with a gut problem, then we'll definitely want to look there. And so we'll do blood testing for food sensitivities and see if there are any major triggers there. Or if we see a lot of them, if we see a lot of food sensitivities, then we know that there's significant, uh, the gut barrier is significantly compromised. And we know we have a lot more work to do in that area. But the way that I always approach treatment is, number one, the process should be enjoyable for the patient. It should not create additional stress. And I think that's one of the things that is overlooked uh, by a lot of practitioners is that these some of the treatment plans, not only are they unfounded, but they're too ex- extreme and they create more stress on the patient. And a stressed out patient is just not going to get well. And so the whole process there should be excitement about it. It uh, should be somewhat fun. It should be enjoyable. It should not create more stress. Uh, so that's uh, kind of the I love cor- that. Cor- yeah, I mean, that's kind of the cornerstone of my uh, philosophy when we're talking about food. Because food has just become, it's so ridiculous. I mean, it's just become demonized for, for really no reason whatsoever. And I think, like you said, it you know, has. people end it up... Has. Just- becoming so stressed. I mean, Dana and I talk about this every day, all day long. You know, when we read these forums, people just so stressed about what to eat, what not to eat. And I I hate to say it, but she and I are kind of like, you know, you got to live your life. I mean, you have to be smart about it, but you also can't get yourself 
so stressed about it that you can't function or can't do anything or can't go out with your friends or can't enjoy your birthday or can't anything like that, right? You've got to enjoy your life and be smart about how you do it. You know, it's, it's almost absurd, you know, some of the things that get talked about. I mean, you're exhausted just reading these protocols and, you know, so to hear you say you've got mm-hmm. to, it's got to be enjoyable for the patient. It's got to be doable, right? Because stress, you know, all the stuff that you're going to be doing, managing this diet, you're going to counterbalance it with the amount of stress that you're doing trying to do it. <laughs> well, well, and know. the maybe the, I'm just a lazy um, thyroid the, patient. <laughs> no, but and the availability or the the access or or whatever to be able to do some of these diets. You know, we're well, going to have for you. some paleo yeah. and autoimmune paleo um, guests on coming up, and and I'm not trying to um, discredit anything they have to say, but I ab- absolutely and Tiffany is is with me. I know 100 percent behind this. We absolutely believe in individuality and that. Right. that AIP may not be for everybody. And there are some forums, right. believe it or not, I don't know if you even know this or not, um, Dr. Hedberg on Facebook, that, you know, if you are not completely gluten-free and on the AIP diet, you cannot join in Get any out. kind of questioning <laughs> or, or, or anything in some of these forums because they're so, um, you know, adamant about it. And I actually know many, many people who the autoimmune paleo diet does not work for, not to say that it doesn't work for some people, but but my point is is that everybody is different, which is what you're saying, which is what I love so much, and which is why we wanted to have you back on the show, because I believe that, and so does Tiffany, that, that it's, there's so many different elements that go into each person. We are all so, not, so uniquely different. We're a lot the same, but we're so uniquely different with where we were born, what our mother had, where we grew up, where we lived, if we visited Chernobyl, like you said, or, you know, it just <laughs> it just depends. I mean, truly. And so I love that you said that because that's so validating for us. So thank you. Yeah, <laughs> so I see, uh, I see many patients who have tried, you know, like autoimmune paleo and it didn't work um, or they even felt worse. And then some people feel a little bit better on it. And so I'm not familiar with any of those forums, but my advice would be to avoid those like the plague because they're just going to be filled with fanatics and it's just going to create more stress and confusion. And I completely understand why conventional medicine is so skeptic, so skeptical of alternative medicine. It's because of things like that. Uh, it's just, it's it's so ridiculous, uh, and and so many people out there are going through this process or trying to go through a healing process, and there's just a significant amount of unneeded stress and anxiety put on them by this type of fanaticism. Hmm. Amen. That's a flower field moment right there. Yep. It is a fire-filled moment. So listen to your body, people. Listen to your body. You know, and it doesn't hurt to try things, especially if you're, you know, if you're able to. You know, if you've got four kids and a full-time job and, you know, your husband is this and, and, and he travels, trying to, sometimes trying to do some of these diets is just not going to work for you. But if it is going to work for you, okay, try it. You know, try it. See what, see what works. But, but be, first and foremost, listen to your body. And try not to, you know, be so extreme. Like Dr. Like Dr. Hedberg said, just 
try to take everything with a grain of salt, right? And I think that's that's the benefit of of seeing someone like you, Dr. Hedberg, is your job is to rule out and find all the the different nitty-gritties and help someone design that plan. I think that's, you know, frequently what people miss is that the value of a great, knowledgeable doctor that will handle that whole portion of this may be better, this amount of this, stick with these, low glycemic carbohydrates, do this, do that. You know, that's the, the extreme benefit of consulting with, uh, you know, a physician like yourself, a naturopath. So I got one more burning question for you before we let you go back to football. And we do so much appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. But really, really important, alkalinity, acidity, and candida. How would that affect the thyroid and some helpful tips for people that, that um, maybe suffer from being acidic or candida overgrowth, things like that? Right, it's interesting. Like me. Uh, if you look at, <laughs> speaking of paleo and things like that, if if you look at hunter-gatherers, their uh, urinary pH was actually extremely high, of around 7.5 and higher. Their diets were very, very high in fruits and vegetables, foods that were very, very high in buffering minerals like magnesium and potassium. And what the research shows is that chronic metabolic acidosis, which a lot of Americans have because of acid-forming diets, this begins to negatively affect a lot of a lot of things in the body. But I'll just focus specifically on thyroid. And uh, there is one paper that I have out of uh, Switzerland that showed chronic metabolic acidosis actually increases the TSH and decreases free T4 and free T3, which are the two most active forms of thyroid hormone. And so acid-forming foods are mainly meat, dairy, grains, and legumes. And then alkaline-forming foods are mainly fruits and vegetables. And so depending on the severity of the acidosis, we'll do anywhere from 60 to 80% alkaline-forming foods and 20 to 40% acid-forming. And so it doesn't mean that you know you can't eat acid-forming foods. It's just at a lower percentage of your diet. And so it's really important for the thyroid and the metabolism to have plen- plenty of alkaline-forming minerals like magnesium and potassium from fruits and vegetables. And then with the candida, basically, we mainly see that in people who have just been on too many antibiotics and who have just eaten too much sugar and processed foods. And so that's a matter of reducing sugar and processed foods. And then on stool analysis, we can identify the type of the yeast and then we can identify what herbals will clear it out, so to speak. Um, but a lot of times it's just, it's just a matter of cleaning up the diet so the patient is not eating things that would feed uh, fungi and then maybe using an antimicrobial for a month or two and then making sure they have good gut bacteria so that it doesn't return. Because uh, it's recently been shown that 
this one round of antibiotics can really screw up the gut bacteria for up to two years. And I mean, that's just after a single seven to 10 day round of antibiotics. So that, that really adds up. That's why I always ask every patient, how many times in total through your entire life would, would you say you've taken antibiotics? And sometimes, you know, it's, oh gosh, so many times I can't even remember. And so we know that there's a lot of work to do on the gut uh, bacteria and the diet and things like that. Now, do you get pretty aggressive with candida, Dr. Hedberg, as far as, um, you know, or is it more just, you know, like you were mentioning, the, the, the success and happiness of your patient during the, you know, the food program or whatever? So many people are so extreme on candida um, diets, and is yours a little bit more reasonable where you're just trying to get things lined back up and encouraging probiotics, like you said, the antimicrobials, herbs to help with things, or is it pretty aggressive for a short period of time? Yeah, so that it depends on the on the severity, but uh, my approach is usually a different, little bit different from a lot of other practitioners, whereas I'm really more focused on the immune system than I am the candida because the only reason it's there is because the immune system can't control it. And so our main focus is on that aspect, getting the immune system and the gut uh, immune system really healthy enough so that it can just metabolize the candida and then control it. Because you can go in easily and wipe it out, but if the immune system is still weak, then it'll probably just come back, and then it's just kind of a vicious cycle, you know, over and over again. And what is your favorite diagnosing or what what testing, you know, because that's kind of one of those um, more problematic, you know, not necessarily addressed as often as it should be. What is your favorite diagnostic testing for candida and severity of candida and like that? So definitely uh, stool analysis and then uh, the patient's history, their symptoms, uh, you can usually figure it out that way. But if if someone has a a fungal problem, then it's usually going to show up in the stool or it'll be very clear based on their symptoms. All right. Okay. Well, Dr. Hedberg, we are absolutely thrilled to have had you join us again today. And sorry to have pulled you away from football. Believe me, I know how that is because I have a husband who's a football <laughs> watcher. So I um, <laughs> want to tell you thank you, thank you. And I also wanted to mention I know that you were um, a guest expert on the Metabolism and Weight Loss Summit with Catherine Watkins, and I know she is fabulous. So for those of you who um, – who are listening, you've got to check it out. Dr. Hedberg is on there along with Sarah Ballantyne and Heather and Damien Dubay and, uh, of course, Dr. Karazian. You're listed with some with some pretty big people in there, Dr. Dr. Hedberg. That's fabulous. How was it? Was she just adorable or her accent is, is to die for, correct? <laughs> She's a really, really uh, sweet woman, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's going on from, it starts, what, tomorrow? through the October 9th, so you guys can check out Dr. Hedberg and all the other fabulous um, speakers and experts dealing with metabolism and and weight loss. So check it out. I've got an ad on my side. I'm sure Dr. Hedberg has something, but um, it's nice to know that one of our guests, or 
several of our guests are, are listed. So so that's wonderful. Just wanted to throw that out there and mention it because I'm sure that Absolutely. was kind of interesting and exciting for you to do, right? Very exciting. I'm look, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Good. Okay, well, we're going to let you go. Um, we'll talk about how we can um, everybody can find you on, on Facebook and, and the Internet, and uh, we'll just let you go and go watch your football and go tell your wife, wife, thank you for letting us steal you, <laughs> letting us steal you away today. Thank appreciate you, Dr. Hedberg. you guys having me on again. Uh, appreciate it, and uh, we'll be in touch. Take care. Awesome. You okay, too. thank you. We'll let you know about the Super Bowl if you win. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. Right. All right. Enjoy today. Okay, bye. Take care. Bye-bye. That is an amazing book. What did yeah. you say half that book was yeah. recipes? It is. I've got it right here in front of me and um you know, and that's why I'm I'm glad we talked about it because there's there's some, you know, of course all this is very healthy. But there's some things in here that made me think, hmm, I bet he's not, you know, um, an eliminator. Eliminate this food, eliminate this food, eliminate this food, et cetera. You know, I just uh, just had a feeling. So um, I'm glad that he stated that because it was very validating for a lot of us, correct? Absolutely. I mean, I think it causes more problems. He's got some quinoa stuffed tomatoes. Ooh. Quinoa stuffed tomatoes, cauliflower pizza crust. Spinach and tofu curry. I'm not sure about that, but it sounds interesting, right? Well, I mean, what's really the worst great that can stuff. happen? You guys right? got to check it out. What's the worst that right. can happen if you make it? You might feel smoking. You might just have amazing energy and brain clarity, and yeah. you know, of rather course. than being so focused about you know the the cauliflower being a goitrogen or something like that, eat it. Your body's going to tell you, right. you know, need to do that right. again. That was a good That's one. Right. <laughs> or maybe let's right. move to the Absolutely. next one. You know what I mean? <laughs> the body's yep. pretty smart. So it is a, it has includes 150 recipes. So it's, a, it's very awesome. great. It's a, it's a wonderful book. So the Complete Thyroid Health and Diet Guide, you can find um, an ad for it on Thyroid Nation. I'm sure you can find it on his page. It is a great book. So definitely check that out. Well, that was a, a All right. great show again. I'm so glad to have him on. Tiff, um, what do you think? I do, I do. And for those, um, Dr. Hedberg, you can find him at drhedberg.com, also on Twitter, on Facebook, Dr. Nicholas Hedberg. Uh, he's going to be on, uh, like Dana mentioned, the Metabolism and Weight Loss Summit, which is very cool. And then he also offers telemedicine through Skype or via the phone. So you can you know, have his extraordinary care and the benefit of all this from anywhere in the world, which is very, very cool. So, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I need to get that book. I want to get that book. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yep. I've got it for you. I already got it for you. Like sending it in the mail. It's coming your way. Okay, girl. How about next week? Who's What wonders do yeah. we have for next week? We got. We have Magdalena. I don't know how to say her last name. I'm going to ask her how to say it on the show if I if I don't get to it firsthand. The thyroid diet coach, and she's also the founder of HormonesBalance.com, and she's got some some free um, cooking things going on. You got to check her out her her website because I just signed up for a free um, healthy cooking uh, live webinar. One was yesterday, one was today, one was tomorrow. So you got to check out her site. But she's going to be on the show. We'll talk about it all next week. So I'm. I'm excited to talk to her. 
she's got lots to say too. She's been doing this for a long time. Very and cool. And as always, a very big thank you to yeah. Well, we just and she's she's gonna be you know it's, it's neat to get different perspective from everybody. So and she's got a lot to say. So you gotta check her out and she will be live, she will be well on the show with us next week. So you gotta. You got to tune in, and as always, we want to give a very big thank you to you guys, our listeners, and uh, be sure and share your thyroid driver story with us. We've got lots on our thyroid drivers page. I've got a really cool one uh, that's going to be posting tomorrow. Jill Gerfinkel, I think is how you say it. Um, she's a thyroid cancer survivor, and so uh, we'd love to have your your thyroid driver story. If you want to submit it, you can just check out my page, and you'll see the submit button. Very cool. Also, a very, very big thank you, as always, to our amazing Thyroid Nation radio team who make just the the inner workings and lots of questions, and just the show would not be possible without them. Raina Kranz, Laura Schooneman, Melissa Phipps, Blythe Clifford, Penny Jensen, and Shannon Garrett. Please check out their bios, Thriver Stories, Facebook support groups, blogs, and websites. There's so much information just between those particular women at thyroidnation.com radio. And make sure to follow Thyroid Nation at thyroidnation.com on Facebook. And also the Hoshies and Graves Facebook support group. Just type in Hoshies and Graves. You'll be able to see it. It'll pop right up. Twitter, Instagram, Periscope. Tune in weekly for Thyroid Nation Radio. Definitely Periscope. We have been doing Periscope. more scopes. And Tiffany will be doing, will be doing more scopes. <laughs> She's going to be doing essential oils and Tiffany's two cents on thyroid and health and all that good stuff. So, um, check us out on Periscope. If you have a Twitter account, then you definitely have Periscope. So check it out. And it's very cool because then you get to see Dana's beautiful face, and it's just it's fun because it's mm. like people are sitting right in front of you. I love it. I know. <laughs> I know. I, I do know. Too. I know. <laughs> <laughs> we want to remind you all that wellness is a journey. We say it all the time and takes continual maintenance and evaluations. Embrace the smartness of your body, of your own body. Make sure to always listen to your own body and be mindful of what it is telling you. And so when Tiffany says that or I say that every week, you know, basically, you know, wellness is a continual journey. It can ta- it takes continual maintenance and evaluation. So just because someone may feel well today, if they're a Hashimoto's person and they're doing all the right things, uh, external, you know, situations can, can change all that. So it's always right. ever changing. Right, death even car someone, accidents, yeah, yeah, support, yeah. You, know, life, you may life. be looking, you may be sitting there across the table from somebody who says, "Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, you know, not dealing with Hashimoto's right now. I'm in remission or whatever." People use all kinds of words, but to say that they are feeling well, and you know, two months later, their situation could change. So it takes continual maintenance and evaluation. Always, Amen, always sister. listen to your body, right? This is Dana, your thyroid nation, Grangatika from Costa Rica. <laughs> and Tiffany Milanich of GratefulGarden.biz. Bringing the collective voice of thyroid thrivers worldwide so that together, united, we heal. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Thank you. Happy Sunday. Bye-bye.